So we're talking about the colonies in the 1750s, just to kind of a brief overview. Remember, that our purpose overall here is to provide background on the influence of Christianity on the development of America. So here we are, we're at, at session two or lesson two, however you want to look at it, out of nine, okay? And I was trying to figure out what to do about uh, October the 8th, because I'm going to be gone, but D fixed that this morning, okay? Because there are no classes on the 8th, okay? They're doing, we're doing, uh, doing a big deal here. It's the 50th anniversary. So here are the objectives, the economic, religious, and political conditions in England and Europe that led to the colonization of America, three geographical groupings of the colonies, three types of colonial government structures, the type and level of taxation, who got to vote and why, the relationship between Spain, France, England, Native American tribes, and the colonies. Lots of players here. The similarities and differences between slavery and indentured servants, and the role of the Great Awakening on the development of the colonies. Right? So first off, we're going to deal with these three areas of primarily with England, and then we'll look a little bit dealing with, uh, with Europe. And we're going to pick it up kind of at 1750. It's difficult to pick 1750 out of the European model, okay? but we want to see how that impacts things here. So here were the conditions about 1750. Very high unemployment in England. Okay? And it had to do a lot of it with a conversion of large farms, okay? large tenant farms. The, the landowners said, we don't need all those tenants anymore. We're just going to go to sheep here. So you got lots of tenants out of work. They moved into the cities, and they were called sturdy beggars because they were strong enough to work, but they didn't have a job. There's also high inflation because primarily the influx of gold and silver into the New World. So th this is the other piece that went on in England. The people who had small farms there, they figured out, even though I've got this small farm, it's hard to make a living here because the, the big landowners own the majority of things. <clears throat> so what I can do is I can sell stuff here. I can go to America because I'm an English citizen. I'm an English citizen there, and I can buy land, a big chunk of land, and, I, and I'll own it, and then I can make a, a living for my family. The other one was this persecution of various religious groups by different religious groups. So I want to keep in mind, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about England here in a little bit, about their going back and forth. Catholics were highly persecuted throughout England for a long time, and to some extent are today. The Puritans, on the other hand, they wanted to reform the Anglican Church to a Protestant model without the king as the head. Well, that's not going to go over well. Then you've got a group called the Separatists. They wanted to break away from the Anglican Church, okay? And they were persecuted more than the, the Catholics. And then the Quakers, some estimates are about 65,000 Quakers in England in 1665. They would not join the militia. Even when they came here, they wouldn't. They refused to pay taxes, and they refused to take an oath to the king. So the English had picked up a method from, from the Romans. Okay? You don't like the way we're doing things, we give you choices. Okay? We can kill you. Well, they got a little more modern at this point in time, so that wasn't all that acceptable. We can put you in prison, which they did a bunch of, or listen, we have this place it's about six weeks away. We put you on a boat and send you there. Okay? And let them deal with you. So the political stuff in England is just crazy. Take the period from 17, excuse me, from 1485 to 1603. They called the Tudors. This is Henry the Seventh, Eighth. This is Edward, Mary, Elizabeth. This is this is this group. This is a family. Okay? And the, Henry will come back to get us here later. Okay? Then you got the Stuarts. They came into, into power. Now you got the James and the Charles and the Williams and the Queen Anne. Queen Anne. So you've got this constant turmoil between this family and that family and the intermarrying and who's in, who's in control. 
Okay? And then you got the Hanoverians that came into to power, and these, these were the folks we had to deal with early. This is King George I, II, and Third. Now, you add to that the battle between Protestant and Catholic, and you probably can't see it because I didn't do a good job here, but if you come back here, Henry VII was Catholic, the Eighth was a Protestant, Edward VI was Protestant, Mary I was a Catholic, Elizabeth was a Protestant. Okay. So you, you got, you're persecuted if you're on this side. Well, they changed kings. All right, so now I'm safe. No, we changed kings again. No, now I got to get into hiding. Okay. So you got all that going on. That would, that would cause you to go, is there someplace else I can go? No, but, but this family feud, okay, just keeps going, okay? Oh. I mean, you go to England today and talk to them about those families, English still know about those families. Okay? They had significant impact. Then you've got political upheavals. You've got this thing called the Puritan Revolution that lasted about seven years. This is the Puritans and Parliament versus King Charles I. It's over who's going to control it. Do we want a parliamentary government? King said, no. Well, the Puritans said, yeah, we like that idea. No, no. So the battle goes on, but they solved that. Okay? The Puritans won, and they just cut the head off the, off the king. So you have, they, if you put a king in prison, there's a probability somebody will break him out, okay? and now you've got that problem. Okay? Because he'll get a group together that supports him because he's got a big family. And so we stop that. We just remove his head from his shoulders. And now he's, he's not, no longer a problem. And that's going to happen a couple more times here, quickly, okay? You're right, okay? So here, here's the one you were just talking about. This is an attempt by, by James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, to overthrow King James II, okay? So notice, we've, again, you've got Protestant, Catholic, okay? So, you, so everything else that's going on, you've got this battle between these armies marching across England, where you're trying to just make a living. Then you got what they call the Glorious Revolution. Okay? Good thing is it only lasted one year. The other good news is that it is now we have the rule of parliament came out of this. Okay? They finally decided that was enough. <clears throat> but again, you've got James II, who is Catholic, against Mary II, who is Protestant, and her husband, William of Orange. Okay? Yeah, these were not necessarily good people. Okay? So I get a kick out of the maps of Europe for that period of time because uh, I have family on my wife's side who, who are German-speaking Poles that were living in the late 1800s in what people refer to as Russian-occupied Poland. Well, that's interesting because Poland as a country didn't exist Till about 1914. Now there was Polish people, okay, but as a country, it didn't exist. But but look at all these little bitty kingdoms all over, in here. Okay, that's what some people wanted to happen here. Okay, because you end up with constant battle. So there's a group called Huguenots. These are French Protestants. A group of them were, were massacred in the 1572. Those that didn't, they escaped to Netherlands, Denmark, and England. All right? Now, they're Protestants. They're going to get along well there, except now if you get a king in, in power that's a, that's a Catholic, now the Protestants are in disfavor. So one of the things they found, they could be accepted in the colonies. So let's just get out of Dodge. Then you've got Germans who've suffered from wars between large European kingdoms over and over. I mean, that, that part of Europe, they just marched across it 
for a couple of hundred years, okay? Right. Because they were gunsmiths, and everybody wanted to own the gun. Gun, all right. So, by the way, the Germans are, are Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay, that's, that's that group. They settled primarily in New York and Pennsylvania. By 1700, there were 100,000 German-speaking colonists in America. Now, that's a big group. <sighs> Some other issues. The Scots, uh, initially they came over in small groups, but then when Conwell, when Oliver Cromwell took things over, then he got all these prisoners of war, and his way of dealing with that is rather than try to house them okay, and feed them, we just load them on a boat and send them to the colonies. Okay? So that's how a lot of the Scots got over here. The, the Irish were Anglican, or Presbyterians, those could come here. If the, the Catholic Irish were not welcome, okay? If the, if the Irish were moved move themselves into large cities, the, the English said, we just do not need any more poor people here. Because now the government is, has some level of responsibility for the poor. Well, you don't want that responsibility. Well, anything you do, you put them on board a ship and you send them to the colonies. So they didn't, send the, they didn't send the top tier folks, they just sent those that had essentially no skills, okay, and were poor. The other one is in England, their Celtic culture, oh, the, the king wanted to get rid of that, and don't, we just don't need another culture here. So th this is a little better look at, at what Europe looked like in that period of time. Notice that it's, it's not Poland as a country, it's a Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth. And, and we draw these nice, even boundaries when, in fact, the, the boundaries moved depending upon what the army was able to do. But you can see that you've just got these little bitty kingdoms all over in Europe, and some large ones. I mean, you've got you know, Spain back here, but then it's got Portugal on its back. So we've got all these folks who showed up here, and they're all subject of England, and the period of time we're looking at is under King George II. And, and one of the pieces that hadn't dawned me for a long time is we have British citizens, and then we have naturalized British citizens. And so I hadn't thought until yesterday to look about how do you become a naturalized British citizen. Well, it's more complicated than I wanted. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy making because, it, again, it depends on the period of time. Okay? But early on, if you came here and you were from another country, children born here okay, in the colonies were British citizens. And that's where that piece shows up in, in our laws, okay? Then we got King George III, who wasn't much nicer than King George II, okay? But by 1750, at least Virginia had been in existence for 144 years. Now, that's a significant piece of time. The colonies divided into three groupings. One of them called charter colonies, where charters were granted to companies. In the case of Virginia, to start with, it was two companies back in 1609. It was the London Company. They got from 40, 31 to 41 degrees latitude, essentially from North Carolina to New York. And then the Plymouth Company also got a charter from the king. They got 38 to 45. That's from New York to Canada. Except there's an overlap of 100 miles where they both had authority. <clears throat> so if you want to create a problem, right, let's give two companies authority to put 
plantations on the same piece of ground. Okay? The, the stuff I've read, the king essentially said, I want to see who wins. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only reason that the king wanted this stuff to happen was for the welfare of, of England. He wants these people to come here, be successful, so he can tax them. So here's another look about how the country looked kind of at the time. France was already well established up here in what we now call Canada. This, these are our 13 colonies. Spain claimed this. And then Spain and France both at various times claimed all the rest of this. They didn't know what this looked like. Okay? Right? But they claimed that. Some of their stuff they claimed just out to the Mississippi. Some of it they claimed as far as it went. They didn't know how far it went, but however far it went, that's ours. So we put these colonies in three groupings based on location. New England, middle, and southern. Okay? <coughs> and I don't know that these are typical homes of those regions at that time, but they're not untypical. Okay? Remember, they're well-established colonies. So then we talk about which colonies are in which group. So the New England colonies are Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Now notice that Massachusetts is two pieces. It goes clear up there where Maine is today, okay? And it is what we call Massachusetts today. Then there's New Hampshire in there. And then there's Connecticut. Those are the New England colonies. Okay. Then the middle colonies are New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Southern colonies, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Georgia was the last of the colonies to be developed. <laughs> Maps from that period of time show these boundaries rather than being along, the, along through here like they typically were. Notice they go all the way out to the Mississippi. They didn't know what was out there, but they knew the Mississippi River was there. Okay? But it's, it goes from here to wherever that's at and everything in between. So then there were different government structures. Not intermediate, but these are well established by 1750. All free men were English citizens under the jurisdiction of English law, with three types of colonial government, just to make things more complicated. There are charter governments, there are proprietary governments, and there are royal governments. Okay? So charter governments were a corporate contract with England, primarily with the king, more specifically with a group called the Board of Trade, in order to run a business and provide money back to England. People who lived in a charter colony were, enjoyed the privileges of self-powered, self-government. Self okay? They got to vote on everybody. They got to make a lot of decisions initially. Okay. This is mostly the New England place, New York. The Dutch West Indies is also part of that, okay. Caribbean, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. They had written, signed charters with the king, as well as Virginia, which is the one that started with. Okay. So here's an example. I'll see if I can do this. I hope my voice will hold out. Okay. This is a charter given by King Charles I to a group of Puritan leaders in New England for, for the colony of Massachusetts. So I'm going to pick on some pieces out of this. So this is the title area. Massachusetts. Charles, by the grace of God, King of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland. Defender of the faith. Okay? He's talking now about what lands. Actually, 
possessed or not actually possessed or inhabited by any other Christian prince or state. Okay? So he's not describing the boundaries, but essentially going, well, anything in that area that somebody else doesn't claim. Okay? Or if they claim it, okay, if they're not Christian, then it doesn't matter. Right? Then it goes on. And for the directing, ruling, and disposing of all matters and things, whereby our, our said people, inhabitants there, may be so religiously, peaceably, and civilly governed, as their good life and orderly conversation may win and incite the natives of the country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind, and the Christian faith, which in our royal intention, and the adventurous, adventurous free profession is the principal end of this plantation. And it goes on. This is the, I mean, that was the Massachusetts one. Here's the Connecticut one, okay? Again, this is Charles II from 1662. For as much as it hath pleased the Almighty God by the wise disposition of his divine providence, so to order and dispose of things that we, the inhabitants and residents of Windsor, Hadford, and Withersfield, are now cohabitating and dwelling in and upon the river of Connecticut, and the land, whoops, back up, and the lands thereunto adjoining and well knowing when a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain the peace and union of such people, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God to order and dispose of the affairs of the people at all seasons as occasion shall require, do therefore associate and conjoin ourselves to be one public state or commonwealth. And others will say there was no religious implication in the formation of the country. And, and these kings, regardless of how ruthless they were, at least claimed that they were doing this okay, in, with God's hand. Okay? So there's, there's a couple of charters. Now we have proprietary government. This is a company business deal with the king. You let me have some land, I'll make you a deal. Okay? We'll do these things and you'll get paid this way. However, the king said, well, I'm not going to buy you any land. Uh, because, we, because the king claims ownership of the land, you can have it, but you've got to pay for it. Okay? And, and in most cases, it's pay the natives for it. Okay? But you have to run a business there. Okay? Now, nearly all proprietary governments became royal by 1776. And that's because privilege and power was held by the proprietor, and that put the proprietor in conflict with the king. And, and kings have subtle ways of solving those problems. I made you a deal, but we have a new deal. Okay? And the new deal is, I'm in charge, and you're not, okay? However, we'll let you stay there, but you have to get, have to have advice, assent, and approbation from the greater part of the free man. Oh, wait a minute. The king said, you can be here, okay? I give you authority to do this, but you can't do it on your own. Not only you got to check with us, but you got approval, get approval of the, free men living in that colony, okay? Before you can do stuff. So proprietary governments, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, okay? Then the first royal government, okay? was in Georgia. It was established by the king in 1732. Now, it's, it's a new colony at this point in 1750, okay? But this is the only one where the, where the king, where, where England put money into the development of, of the colony. So here's the status by 1776. All of these are royal by 1776. 
There are only two charters left and three proprietary. Okay? So you can see that as time went on, with disagreements with the king, he said, no, we're not doing that. I'll take that one. No, I'll take that one. Okay. So this is one map I ran across of what Southern Carolina would look like in Georgia. Comes down and included Florida, which was also claimed by the Spanish. So you can see there's potential for battle. Now, now we come to the internal structure. We've got to go back to England because these are English colonies, right? So we've got the king, and the king's got two advisory groups. One of them's called the Privy Council, kind of like uh, Biden's group of, of crazies that meet with him, okay, the cabinet, okay? Then there's another group called the Board of Trade, okay? And that's an interesting group. And then you've got the Parliament, which is the House of Lords and the House of Commons that exists today. Okay? The Board of Trade no longer exists, but it, it's, it is a powerful organization. It's Lords and Commissioners of Trade and Plantations was their official title. It had 16 members, eight of them from the Privy Council. Now, that's, that's the folks who are selected by the king to run various departments. So they've got the king's ear, and he's got eight of them on the Board of Trade. Where do you suppose he got the other eight? He handpicked them, yeah. It's, it's, it's his Board of Trade, okay? They, they appointed colonial governors for all the royal colonies. Remember by 1776, this was almost everybody. They approved governors for proprietary colonies, and they influenced the selection of governors in charter colonies, including, including the governor for Virginia. Okay? So the Board of Trade is all-powerful here. We talk about the king, but it really is the Board of Trade. And he's busy with lots of other stuff, but th their job is to run things. So what about laws that were passed? Well. Review all laws passed by royal and proprietary colonies. Had to review all of those. How long did it take? You, you write a law, you send it over for those guys to look at. How long did it take to get over there? It's about six weeks, if everything's good. Okay, no, no major storms. Now, it's got to get on the docket for the Board of Trade, right? And get to the table from discuss it and vote on it. Then they make a decision and then they send it back. So you're looking at about a three to four month delay for anything you go to do. They could veto any law proposed by any of the royal or proprietary companies. Because you propose a law and it's like, well, we all agree with this. Let's start implementing it. You send it over there. Four months later, you find out, no, you can't do that. Okay. Well, what happened in some of the colonies is they've said, yeah, well, listen, we're already doing that. All right? I know you don't like it, but sorry, we're doing that anyway. Okay? Then they had influence over the laws in the charter colonies. Okay? Influence by a money and by a people and position. And it's important to keep in mind that all colonies existed to provide financial support for the mother country. That was their only purpose for existence. There wasn't a place to get rid of the, of the, the beggars. They, did, they used that, but its primary purpose, I mean, the king is clear over and over. It, they only exist to support the mother country. Oh, yeah, and then on top of that, then we throw in the church issue, okay? I mean, you just, you just think you don't have enough trouble, and now we're going to throw the Angli Anglian church in there. The bishop for the Anglican church is located in London. And we'll see later on there's a discussion about them having a bishop here, okay? Now, folks weren't all that keen about the Anglican church anyway, because the king is the head of that, and a lot of these people came here to get out from underneath that. And now they're talking about putting 
a bishop here, okay, that's going to add into all the rest of the problems that, that show up. So here's, the, here's a little bit about local colonial government. You have the king, you've got a governor that is either selected by or approved by the king. Then you've got a governor's council, council that is approved by the Board of Trade. Okay? And then you've got the local assembly. And, and we'll see how the local assembly has a, a real impact here in a minute. Okay? So colonial governments, oh, governor for royal colonies, all appointed by the Board of Trade, as we said, proprietary, approved by the Board of Trade, corporate, supposedly elected by the shareholders, but, uh, but approved by the Board of Trade. So the governor's council provides support and direction for the governor. Where do you suppose he gets the council? Council's appointed by the king and the Board of Trade. Very similar to the House of Lords. Seven to 12 members, okay? They're not elected by the freemen. They're appointed positions. So their loyalty is to whom? The king. Now the local assembly, this turns out to be the powerhouse, is the local assembly. This is where, where heads begin to butt. These are elected positions from towns and counties, where counties existed. This group is called the House of Delegates, sometimes the House of Burgess, sometimes the Assembly of Free Men, depending on which colony you're in, what titles they used. Okay. Uh, Virginia had parishes, Pennsylvania had counties, same, you know, same kind of thing, just different names. Here's how they had their power. By 1750, this group, this local assembly, had the, had the purse strings. Okay? And if they didn't like what the governor was doing, they just didn't pay him. Okay? Well, if you're a governor and you're not getting paid, you probably will probably just go do something else. Because okay? uh, it's going to take four months I'm going to complain to the king and take four months before I get anything back. Probably out of luck here. So the members of the local assembly, all representatives elected by the local government, okay, in, New, in the New England colonies, the town was the local government. Even though there was a rural geographic area around them, the towns didn't have borders like we have today, okay? So whatever, wherever our town was, whatever reasonable riding distance from that town was part of that town, okay? By horse, you know, reasonable distance, okay? I'm sorry? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that word gets confused with the mapping system that's used from the Mississippi out this way, where we divide the land up into townships. I mean, the word came from there, okay, but, it, but a township essentially was this geographical area that you got to define, but, but, but that was the center of government. And so every township in a, in a town in the township would have a, a square, and that's where meetings were held, okay? We had county and parish in some places. And, and this one I found interesting. In some areas we have, they're governed by a vesterman. Well, this was a, come on, getting push button too quick here. The fisherman is responsible for supervised relief of the poor and referring violators of religious or moral precepts to appropriate authorities. Well, yeah, except yeah. They would also they also use that authority in the 
Gives you control. I mean, politicians from day one, for the most part, have wanted, wanted control. The, the big thing they did on the religious side was uh, preventing people from having businesses and merchant halls open on Sunday. That was the big deal. Okay? Hmm? Yes. Yep. All right. Members of the Senate, representatives elected by local government, okay? Requirements. Now, I've got to be careful because it depends on which colony and which parish or county or township you're in, what, what, what laws actually apply. But generally, this is what I found, that to be elected, you had to be free, white, natural or naturalized British Protestant males over the age of 21, who owned land or had a personal property value above some set value. Okay? Yeah, natural born, even though we treat it like it's major born in a particular area, the English legal definition of that means that you came into this world with no split loyalties, and that's why they didn't trust the Catholic. Right. So taxes, what do you suppose got taxed? Land, mercantile profits. There was a poll tax and personal property. What's not taxed? Yeah. To be able to vote. Yeah, so, so one of the big deals to me was this deal of no tax on income. Matter of fact, there was no tax on income in America until 1913. It's Well, the business, the property, okay, the land, okay, personal property, like horses and equipment that you have, the land that you own, that can be taxed, okay, the profits from the business that you run, and in some, in some areas, the equipment that you use to produce those profits was also taxable. Yep. That's property, yeah. Not the slaves directly, but the owners, okay? The good news is that prevented some people from owning very many, okay? Then what was the level of taxation? Well, it wasn't all that big. It was one to 2% in some areas as high as 5%, okay? So what do they use the money for? Well, salaries for the colonial staff, supportive churches. You could collect tax money in a county, in a township, in a parish, and use that money for physical support of the church, or in some cases for the support of a pastor, providing that the pastor was also involved in education, especially in New England. Because if you wanted to go to college, you needed to be able to deal with Latin and with, with Greek. And that's the, the person who could probably teach you that. Okay? New England, it was used for schools very sparingly, uh, almost not non-existent in the South, but some in the middle states, in the middle colonies. But New England was, was pretty big on money going to schools. Okay? And then the joke of the period is the money spent on roads. Uh, 
I mean, a road was a path that you could get the horse down or the, or the horse and buggy down. And they're just, you know, paying to maintain it. Yeah. And, re and relief for the poor. Okay. All seem like reasonable things to do with tax money. Okay. Then back to the who can vote. Well, as I said earlier, free, white, natural, born, or naturalized British Protestant males over the age of 21 who own property or personal property above a set value. What, why? What do you suppose the basis of that was? That's right. And if you, if you own property, then you're going to be paying taxes, right? If you don't own any property, you're probably not paying taxes. And so if you're not paying taxes, why would we want you to vote on those things that will impact the cost of what we do? Now, the, the Protestant issue uh, was, re, was different in different places. M many places said, no, we're, you know, they began to let, the, one of the early groups was to let the Jews vote. Okay. And part of that was them becoming citizens. And one of the things they did not require them to do, I need to back up, most of the time in order to be a naturalized citizen, you had to have taken communion within the last three months. Okay. So they did not require Jews to take communion or, or to say that they believed in the, the trilogy. Okay. Because for the most part, the, the, the Jews stayed to themselves. They were uh, financially fairly independent. They didn't cause problems with stuff that was going on in the government. They were self-sustaining. Okay. And so they gained favor. Uh, in some places, the Quakers were allowed to vote. It depends on where you went, okay? So this was primarily a tax issue. In some places, yes. And Catholics also, as time went on, I mean, things changed as time went on, okay? Because as you mentioned earlier, you got all these people who came here to get out from underneath the religious persecution, and now you're going to persecute them, and they're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I left where I was at get out from underneath that. Well, it's not a big deal until now your numbers get large enough. Okay? When, when the people who are like you become a, a significant number of people in the, in the area, now you have some standing. Okay? All right, let's talk about the court system. Colonial law was based upon English law, which was based upon Roman law. Okay? So, so this is not all new stuff. This is pretty sound stuff. Okay? As a matter of fact, the, the legal books of the time were, were Blackstone's four-volume commentary. If you studied law in England or in the colonies, this was your reference. This was the foundation. And I've got Charles' name down here because I've run across a couple of things that says Charles Finney came to Christ reading Blackstone's commentaries. All right? And I'll show you why that is here in just a second. Okay? So here's out of one of his commentary. As man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything that is necessary that he should in all points conform to the maker's will. This will, his maker is, this will of his maker is called the law of nature. The law of nature, directed by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. As such of them as are valid derive all of their force 
and all their authority from this original. Okay? So a common question that was asked at the period of time when people would propose to a law in any of the, of the local governments, okay, the common question was, where do you find that in scripture? Where is the support in scripture for that law? If you can't support that law from scripture, then it's not going to go on the books. And they, part of that belief was found on this understanding of Blackstone. Saying, look, natural law, that's our foundation. Okay? Now, we, we started moving away from this in the 1860s. D Darwin helped with the process of moving away from this. Okay? Uh, a little bit earlier, and, and I think it was 1860s, 1870s in that period of time. And it was Yale that said, no, we're going to not do this. What we're going to do is case law. On, on the belief that as, as times change, the law ought to change to meet up with the times. Okay? And Blackstone had saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Natural law is the law. We, we, we don't move from that. But that's been our movement away. It's important to keep in mind that by 1750, that England was in, in the process of doing whatever they could to make sure that the colonies were, were a humble subjection to their authority. They kept enforcing on them, the reason that you exist is to support us. So with the exception of Georgia, all the colonies were established without any English aid. To give you some idea of that development process, where, where did my Virginia, there it is. This is Pennsylvania. And I think I mentioned this earlier, all, all the lands were purchased in Pennsylvania. Whether it was a fair price or not is probably not up to a lot of argument because it probably wasn't much money. But you can see that it started out down here in six, was it 1682? Yeah, and then we got 83, and then we just started, as you go across here, okay, this was the last big piece was here just before they were able to get this chunk up here so they had access to the, to the, to the lake, okay? But these funny little lines that are in here, these are counties around in here, okay? And uh, my folks started out over here and then moved over to Westmoreland during the, during the Revolutionary War, just before and during. Okay? So all these lands were purchased. They would have purchased the land. The, the colony would establish a county. Okay? And after the, after the war, they did the same thing. Establish county, hire someone to go out and do surveying. And one of the, one of the surveyors early in this area out here was this guy called George Washington. Okay. And a guy by the name of Thomas McKee, who is oh, direct descendant. Okay. He did a bunch of surveying in Pennsylvania, yeah. Virginia, Pennsylvania, I mean it. As they acquired land, they needed surveyors, and uh, there weren't a lot they could trust. Most of them were self-taught. Okay. And, and Pennsylvania, said, they set a county seat right away. Uh, it's good news, bad news. You're trying to find out information about a piece of property. You've got to find out when, what was the date because the county would be large, and then as population get there, they start dividing it up. So your papers may be in a county seat that's in a different county now than when you started, because they stay in that building, or what became of the building. Okay? So land costs. Massachusetts Bay paid about 200,000 pounds for the Massachusetts Bay area, okay? to the local natives. 
Okay. Was it adequate? I, probably not. But it's what they agreed upon. As near as I could calculate, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $54 million. Now, as we talked last week, that's very difficult to do because it wasn't pounds sterling. It was British pounds. And you'll find it's difficult to get from British pounds in the colonial area to pounds sterling today. Okay? If you can make that leap, then you can do the, you know, what, it, what is it today in, in American dollars. But now we're talking about just inflation issues and not the value of land. Okay? Land often will increase in value greater than the, than the well, inflation. Well, th this one I thought was fun. Okay? Uh, Maryland. A charter was granted by King Charles to Lord Baltimore. And, and he bought with 400,000 pounds, which was about $11 million, from this tribe whose name I can never pronounce. Okay? So I'm not going to give it a try. Okay? But you would think that if he did this, he would have gone there and purchased it. Well, no, he, was not, he, he didn't want to leave town. So he said he's going to have his son, Cecil, go there. And Cecil said, no, I don't go either. So I'm going to send my brother, Leonard. Okay? So Leonard is the one that made the deal. Okay? But we read in literature that Lord Baltimore paid 400,000 pounds for, for this area. Well, it's probably his money, but he didn't go make the deal. Okay? I'm not able to find out how much money was spent on Virginia. It was, it was two big businesses. And it was, it was just huge amounts of money, okay? Back up here, okay? What I found stuff is, I mean, my conclusion was it was immense wealth that was lavished, and that's probably not the right word, spent, okay? Trying to acquire land and establish these businesses, okay? And then... Connecticut, the, consumption, the stuff that I read indicated, all right, it consumed great estates in the purchase of lands from the Indians and for revisions and for land patents. So you've got, you've got the land that you bought from, the, from a tribe. Now we've got to have provisions for people to go there and start a business. And we're going to divide up this piece of land, and now we have to get a, a deed. That, in these days, it was called a land patent. So, so you file a warrant, and that goes to the court, which sends somebody out to survey it, okay? And the survey comes back, and if they accept the survey, then you get a patent. We would call it a deed, okay? 